0: Matthew 7, verse 7. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil... Know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good thanks to those who seek him? So, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And this is God's word Ask, seek, knock. God listens. That's the title of the message today. God listens. God listens. That may seem kind of basic, but it's important to understand, God hears. God listens to us, especially when we come to him in prayer. Listen to how David said it in the Psalms, Psalms 61. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. He's asking God to listen to him. Why would somebody ask God to listen to him? Have you ever prayed and wondered if God was listening? David had that happen to him all the time. In fact, it happened so often, he wrote it down in this song. He turned a song into the fact that he wasn't sure if God was listening. Worse than that, his song got put in the Bible. Forever enshrining the fact that David doubted whether or not God was listening, and aren't we thankful that we got to read it? So that when we wonder if God is listening, we can read this and realize this is what happens. Hear my cry, O God. Listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you, when my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. For you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he that is the king be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So I will ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. God listens. David, who is the king, knew that God listened to him even though he came often in In doubt and fear and wonder, is God listening? But nonetheless, he took his refuge in God who listens. God hears us when we cry out to him, and Jesus reminds us of this in Matthew 7. First thing we want to look at this morning. God listens to what we say, what we think, and God listens to what we feel. Verses 7 and 8. God listens to what we say, think, and feel. Look at the three words he says. Ask, seek, knock. These aren't strictly synonyms. They're related to each other. He's developing an idea. He says, come to God and ask him. What, it, what does he want you to ask him? I don't know, whatever you feel like asking. I don't know what that might be, but he's not saying ask for these very religious and pious things. Ask only for things you would ask for in church, nothing else. You say, well, what if I want a hot fudge Sunday? Knock yourself out. Well, I'm lactose intolerant, you might say. And he's probably the one you're going to want to go to. Ask. He says, come to me. say, what are you asking for? What do you want? Ask of me. Seek me out. This is, have the desire of your heart be to come to me with what you desire. Knock on the door. He says, come to me. Seek me out. God knows what we desire. God knows what motivates us. God knows what the passions of our heart are. And he says, I want you to come to me with those things. Ask for what is on your heart. Seek me out to meet the desires of your heart. Come to me, pounding on the door, uh, expecting to hear from me and understanding that I hear from you. Praying from the desires of our heart is not necessarily inconsistent with Jesus' prayer, thy will be done. God is saying, come to me with the desires of your heart and let me figure out what ought to be. But let's not play games with God. We come to him and pray for very pious religious prayers, hoping that he might answer some of the prayers we're too embarrassed to ask him for. He already knows what you desire. I would suggest this. Go ahead and tell him what it is. Pray for his will to be done, but why not at least be honest with him? I think he knows what's going on in our hearts, doesn't he? Prayer from our desire does not necessarily mean, though no, God is going to give you everything you ask for. Anybody ever heard this before? If you ask something from God, he's going to answer in one of three ways. Yes, no, wait. I'm going to throw that out this morning, and now you're all going to storm out of here angry. You can mess with a lot of things, but I heard that in Sunday school. I mean, that's fine. I mean, I'm okay with this, but I'm going to add to it. How about this? His answers are always yes. You say, well, you're starting to sound like a prosperity gospel guy on the TV. Wait for it. I'll ruin it here in a minute. He always says yes. He says, I'll give you what you're asking for, or I'm going to give you something better. That's, that's what he says. He says uh, God, I want this. And he says, no, I'm not going to give you that. I'm going to give you something much better. So you go to your dad. You say, Dad, I need a new bike. Forget about it. I'm buying you a car. I mean, you'd be very excited, wouldn't you? What God is saying is, I will either give you what you're asking, or I'm going to give you something better. He listens to our prayer and he says, if what you're asking for is not good enough, he's not going to give you what you're asking for, he's going he's to do better than you could possibly ask for. You say, well, what if I don't like the better thing that he's offering? Well, we'll get into that in a minute, but it reminds me of a trip I took one year. Uh, this was maybe 2014, went with another pastor friend of mine to Fairbanks, Alaska, And we were at this prayer retreat with some other pastors in Alaska in February. I don't know. I don't know why you go to Fairbanks in February. It was fun. But anyway, we were in this cabin, and this uh, Alaskan pastor comes out, and he's got this Ziploc bag full of salmon dip. And it is exactly as delicious as it sounds. It is a dip made of fresh salmon. When was this caught? Last weekend. This dip a weekend ago was swimming in in the ocean. And now it is dip. And how good is this dip? One of the other pastors said to the guy, Keith, how do you make this dip? He says, take salmon. Other ingredients, dip. And he said, well, I want to know the recipe. And he said, the recipe will die with me. (laughs) He would not tell him the recipe, right? One of the other pastors is sitting there. He says, hey, Keith, is that coho or sockeye salmon? And he says, well, it's sockeye. It's what I I caught. He goes, oh, never mind. I don't want to. Uh, from us the outsiders were in Alaska what's the difference it's salmon dip and yes I tasted it it tasted like happiness <laughs> on a Ritz cracker I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between a sockeye and a coho salmon but the other pastor no thanks I can eat your sockeye no use for it because he had he had developed a taste for what in his mind was better and so this is what we do when God offers us something better. We haven't developed a taste for the good things he wants to give us, and we would settle much more for simply what we're asking for. And so we say, God, we need this. Would you please provide this? And God says, no, I'm going to give you much, something much better, and we turn our nose up at it because we haven't t- developed a taste for the good things that God wants to give us. And so we assume God is just being a jerk when the fact is we just haven't developed a An understanding of what actually is good. What is this God like who listens to what we say, what we think, and we feel? Look at Genesis chapter 32 with me. Genesis chapter 32. Thinking about what it means to seek the Lord. A guy named Jacob was going to his homeland. His brother Esau hated him as far as he knew. And Esau was on his way to meet his brother Jacob. But Jacob assumed that Esau was going to kill him and his family and all his flocks. That would have normally been a safe assumption. That night, knowing the next day he would meet Esau, he separated his camps and then he went by himself. Jacob was left alone and a man wrestled with him until the break of day. I'm going to, spoiler alert, the man is the Lord. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket and his hip was at a joint joint. Jacob didn't care. He wrestled even more with him. Then he said, "Let me go, for the day is breaking." And Jacob said, "I will not let you go unless you bless me." And the Lord said to him, "What's your name? My name' is Jacob." And he said, "Your name's no longer Jacob. it's Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. This is what prayer. this is what seeking the God, God looks like. It's wrestling. It's getting after it, saying, God, I will let you go when you bless me. You say, well, won't God be offended by that? Go back here to this chapter and find out, was God offended with Jacob striving with him? No, in fact, God honored Jacob for his willingness to say, I know that tomorrow, God, unless you show up, I am a dead man to my brother Esau, and I am not letting you go till you bless me. And so Jacob, knowing that God would listen to what he had to say, knew what was going on in his heart, would not let him go. Might I suggest, knowing that God listens to what we say and we think and we feel, may I suggest that our prayers are often too polite? There are things going on in your heart that you are worried that God might hear you say. He's already heard it. You might as well say it. You might as well let him know, this is what's going on. I don't know what to do with this, God. Do you think God can handle it? Listen, I tell you what, you can send me an email if you finally pray the one prayer that ruins God's day. It can't be done. There simply is nothing you can say that God does not already know is in your heart. You might as well come out with it and say, Lord, here's what's going on, here's what what I need, and I don't know what to do with this. Strive with him all night till he shows up. Well, I don't know about that. I can tell a couple of you are still doubting. I won't use your name. Look with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11. There's a parallel passage to the Sermon on the Mount that we're going through in Matthew chapter 7. So Luke chapter 11, Jesus says this. He tells a little story. Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has arrived on a, from, on a long journey, I have nothing to set before him. So midnight, somebody shows up at your house, it's a long journey, they're hungry, they're tired, and you've got no bread to put before him, so you go to your neighbor, you knock on your neighbor's door, and this would not have been terribly unusual, and say, hey, bro, I need some bread. Your friend from inside will answer this way, verse 7, He will answer, don't bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though, he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend. Yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. What does he mean? Knocking on the door all night. I will leave when I have a loaf of bread in my hand. If you want to sleep tonight... It's going to cost you a loaf of bread. You can't put a phone on Do Not Disturb or a door on Do Not Disturb. You're just pounding on the door. Now, he's going to get up and give him his bread. Is it because he's his friend? No, the Bible makes it quite clear. It's because he won't go away. Jesus is saying, God listens to what we say, what we think, and we feel, and be that friend that pounds on his door. I will not leave you till you get up and give me what I'm asking for. A similar story is told over in Luke chapter 18. Let's look at that one as well. Because I can see a couple of you are still doubting. Say, no, you're supposed to pray polite. You're supposed to pray in the King James. Oh, now it's getting... That's, that wasn't nice. If you pray in the King James, that's fine. I have no problem with that. He told them this parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. I love it when they tell us at the beginning of the parable what it's supposed to tell us. Sometimes you read these parables go, I have no idea what's going on. Here, this one tells us what? Pray and don't lose heart. That's the lesson of the parable. Here we go. In a certain city, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected men. Boy, that's a bad dude, and he's a judge. Unsurprising. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him and saying, give me justice against my adversary. For a while, he refused. Why did he refuse? He did not fear God or respect men. Does he care? It's a widow. Afterward, he said to himself this, though I neither fear God nor respect man, he's very honest with himself, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cried to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice speedily. So Jesus you're saying, God is not an evil judge. God is good. He hears what we say, what we think. He knows what's going on in our hearts, and he's saying, keep coming. He is not wicked. He is not long off. He is willing to hear. God is not sleeping. He is, in fact, our caring Father. He is our devoted Father who desires to give us the desires of our hearts in accordance with his will. I need to make one exception to what we're talking about here from James chapter 4. You desire and you don't have. You covet. You don't get it. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask. This is James 4, 3. You do not ask. um, You ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. So let me say this God listens to what we say think and feel wants to give us the desires of our heart or something better God will never give us something to replace him if we're praying for something that if we could finally have it we would no longer have a need for God you can count on the fact he will never give us something that will replace him because he knows the one thing we have going for us is what? him having him we have the best thing He would never give us the worst thing, which is something other than Him. God will give us the desires of our hearts, but of course, He would never give us anything that would replace Him. To pray is to trust God, to believe Him. Do we trust God? God listens, the Bible tells us. He hears what is going on in our heart. He knows what is going on in our minds. He hears the the echo of our voices, and God hears us. The question is, do we believe him? Do we trust him? Do we have a reliant faith that he hears us and can answer, and in fact, will answer? What should we believe about God in prayer? Well, look at it, verse 9. Look at verse 9 of Matthew 7. What we need to believe about God is not primarily he'll give us cool stuff, Not necessarily primarily that he will always give us what we want. What we need to believe about God, according to Jesus here, is what he is like. So we started saying this, God listens. He knows, uh, he listens to what we say, think, and feel. And the second part of this is this, God listens and is moved to action by his caring. God listens and he is moved to action by his caring. Look at verse 9, 10, and 11. Let me read them again if you don't mind. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven uh, give good things to those who ask him? Let me ask you two questions. Are you ready? you got to be honest. You don't have to answer out loud, but no lying because God knows what you think. That's just mean. Why would God answer your prayer? Let's say you're praying to God for something. Why in the world would God be motivated to answer your prayer? Maybe fill in the blank. If blank were true, God would say yes to my prayer request. Why would God answer your prayer? That's a fair question. You've probably asked this question before because you probably have things you're praying for that you don't have. They say, well, why isn't God answering my prayer, giving me what I think is necessary, so you fill in the blank. Well, obviously, it's the following reason. Let's do the reverse of that, the negative of that. How about this? Why wouldn't God answer your prayer? What is keeping him from answering your prayer? If we think God is answering our prayer, oftentimes, and I would say mostly, we assume God would answer our prayer in connection with our character, our integrity. Well, God would have to say yes to this prayer. I'm a really good Christian. I don't say hardly any naughty words, and the ones I do say are just like PG. I attend church on a fairly routine basis, and the times I am there, I'm paying attention half the time. I don't go to any bad movies. Whatever it is. We assume God answers our prayer in connection with our character. Why would God answer our prayer? Because I'm good. Why wouldn't he answer our prayer? And we assume it's due to our failure. God doesn't hear me. He won't answer my prayer because I'm a lousy Christian. He obviously can't answer this prayer because I did X this week. Whatever X is for you. Okay, this is off script. This always gets me in trouble. Let's just pretend that God didn't answer your prayer because you did X this week? Let's just pretend it was because you did something bad. I don't buy it, but let's just pretend for a minute. We're in Mr. Rogers' imaginary neighborhood here for a minute. If he decides not to answer your prayer, it probably isn't for the big ugly one you're thinking about. It's probably for some other one you're not even paying attention to. You think if you're gonna fix that big ugly one, all of a sudden you're fixed? We will celebrate when you are fixed. What do we call that? your funeral. You are home, you're with God, and you are ready to go. And we will say they're fixed. Until you get there, there's always going to be something. I mean to discourage you, I'm just going to tell you the truth. Look at the verses. Let's do that. Notice Jesus' focus in these verses is not on our character or our failure. What is the focus on in relation to the gifts? It is focused on whose nature? God's nature. He says, listen, you evil people, that is broken people, fallen people, tainted by the effects of sin, you know that if you were packing your son's lunch for school, and instead of wrapping up a nice loaf of bread, you put a rock in there, that that would just be rude. It wouldn't even be funny. It would be a little funny. But if you kept doing it over and over, see what would happen is there were some breads when baked a particular way had a grayish tone to them and from a distance they could look like a loaf of bread and you get close, oh, it's just a rock. There was also a particular fish that was consumed that was more like an eel. It was very popular. And so Mr. Jokey Jokey Pants' dad, instead of putting the fish in his lunch, he puts a snake in his lunch. He reaches in to get this delicious fish at lunchtime I know it sounds strange now, but back then it was very normal. And instead of this delicious eel-like fish that they were accustomed to eating, it's a snake. Nobody would think that's a good dad, pulling a trick on his sons. God is not fiendish. God is not vindictive. He is not looking for ways to pull the rug out from under us. He's not looking for ways to get our hopes up and then destroy us. And that's precisely what Jesus is getting at. Jesus is saying the father is a good father. He's not like you. He will give you good things. He may not give you the bread you are asking for. He may not give you the fish you are asking for, but what he does give you will be even better. He is not an imp, a, a vindictive fiendish God looking for reasons just to ruin your day. Look at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. This is worth looking at. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. Forty days, forty nights, he was hungry. The tempter, that is, the devil, came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus answered, It's written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. The devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. If you're the son of God, throw yourself down. Because the Bible says the angels will catch you. Jesus said, the Bible says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He says, I'll give you all this stuff if you worship me. And Jesus said, "Begone, Satan. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil, in Jesus' hunger and fatigue, tempted him with this phrase three times. What is it? If you are the son of God. In the wilderness, in his hunger, the devil wanted him to be convinced one of two things is true. Either I am not worthy to be called the son of God because God hasn't given me the bread I asked for, or God isn't worthy being my father if he won't give me what I'm desiring. So what the devil is trying to do to Jesus and what he tries to do to us in our prayer is convince us either we're a bad son or he's a bad father, neither is true in Christ. The devil is the accuser, and God hasn't answered your prayer yet. God is moved to action by his caring, not by whether or not we deserve it, And the devil is going to try to convince us if God isn't hearing and answering my prayer precisely how I am asking it, either I don't measure up as a son or he doesn't measure up as a father. Both are lies from the devil. God is moved to action, not by how pious we are, God is moved to action because he is good, he is kind. He is a father who seeks to give generously to his children. He is a father who seeks to sacrifice his own well-being for our well-being. He is a father who hears our prayers and answers them with all the good things he has to offer. I want to look at... I don't care what time it is. I'm looking at the clock and realize I don't care. It's terrible. I should be a caring... Anyway, moving on. Genesis 15. Look at Genesis 15. We'll do these relatively quickly, but I want to look at three times that show us God is a good father. Two in the Old Testament, one in the New Testament. Genesis 15. God made a covenant with Abraham, and he said to Abraham, Your children will be as vast and as numerous as the sands on the seashore. Abraham believed him, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And God said this, I'm going to make a promise to you. Bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. He brought all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over and against each other. So two sides. He did not cut the birds in half. Why? It's very, very hard to do. This is called a treaty. The fancy word for it is a suzerain treaty. Normally, what would happen in those times is a big, powerful king would come to Wimpy Wimpy King and he would make a promise to Wimpy King. He would bring a goat. He would cut off the leg of the goat. He would shove the leg of the goat down the throat of the goat. And he would say to Wimpy King, If you do not obey me, it will be done to you as was done to this goat. That's not nice. God comes to Abraham and says, I promise to hold a covenant with you. Divide these animals together. Who passes through the animals? Does Abraham pass through the animals? No, he doesn't. God passes through the animals and says, by doing so, according to suzerain treaty, may it be done to who? Me. If you do not obey my treaty. You say, what? So God, the mighty God, the great God, comes to the small, wimpy guy, Abraham, and says, I'm going to make you a promise, and you better keep it, because if you don't, I will be divided. I will be killed. Did that happen? Did we keep the covenant, first of all? No, we're lousy at keeping promises. Was it done unto God as was necessary? What do we call that? We call that the cross. God comes to us, and he says, I will take on myself the price of your rebellion. This is a good father, and this started in Genesis 15. It didn't start, you know, bad God showed up in the Old Testament, good cop shows up in the New Testament. Genesis 15, God says, I want to make a promise to you to pour my kingdom into you, and if you can't hack it, don't worry about it, I'll cover the tab. 2 Chronicles chapter 29. There's no shame in use in the table of contents. Some of you go, 2 Chronicles, is that a book? It's right after 1 Chronicles. That's not helpful, which is right after 2 Kings. 2 Chronicles 29, Hezekiah is king of Judah. Hezekiah is a good king. The king who preceded him was a bad king. In the first year of Hezekiah's reign, he opened the doors of the house of the Lord and repaired them. He had to do it because the king before him had shut the doors to the temple. They were worshiping all kinds of weird demon gods. And Hezekiah instituted religious and spiritual reforms in Judah. In fact, he was going to hold Passover for the first time in a long time. So he called all the priests and all the Levites together and he said, We're going to do Passover. We need to get the place straightened out. So all the people show up. And this is what happens in 2 Chronicles 29 34. The priests were too few. They could not do all the butchering of the burnt offerings until other priests had consecrated themselves because the Levites helped them. The reason was this the priests had not been setting themselves aside to do the work of the Lord in adequate numbers. What this means, Hezekiah said, we're going to do Passover. It's going to be awesome. And the priests were like, I don't know, some ping pong on, on ESPN2. No, let's get ready. You got to, there's a certain rituals you've got to go through in order for you to be ready to do the sacrifices. They're like, I don't know. I, I got to wash my hair. And then all the people showed up, and there weren't enough priests to do all the sacrifices. Some of the Levites who weren't priests had to pitch in and help. Hezekiah then sent Israel letters saying, there's a huge Passover going on. Writers went out into all of Judah and Israel telling people, come out for Passover is going on and listen to what happened to them. They went through the cities and they came to the country, country of Ephraim, one of the tribes of Israel, and these folks laughed at them, scorned them, and mocked them. So Hezekiah is having this great religious and spiritual reform, and they send writers out into the countryside. Come on out. This is going to be great. And the people of the countryside mocked him. You keep your silly religious stuff. Nonetheless, they held the great Passover, verse 15 of 2 Chronicles 30. They slaughtered the Passover lamb on the 14th day of the second month. Guess what? Wrong month. It's two months late. Moses gave a certain month that had to be done. You can do it two months later if you happen to accidentally walk by and touch a body. That's not what happened here. They were just late. They're holding a a pretty bad Passover with pretty bad priests in the wrong month, and most of the people didn't even want to go to it. It gets worse. Verse 17. There were many in the assembly who had not consecrated themselves. They showed up for the Passover... And they hadn't even set themselves aside to worship the Lord. You had to go through certain things to be ready to worship God at the temple. Therefore, the Levites had to slaughter the place over the lamb for the people. The priests weren't ready. The people weren't ready. They're holding it in the wrong month. What is God going to do? Oh, you've read the Old Testament. You know what God does in this situation. Somebody's about to get smote. There is a column of fire, and somebody is going to get burned. Let me read what happens. A majority of the people from Ephraim, Manasseh, Issachar, Zebulun had not cleansed themselves, and they ate the Passover otherwise than prescribed. But Hezekiah prayed for them, saying, "May, May the good Lord pardon everyone who sets his heart to seek God, the Lord, the God of his fathers, even though not according to the sanctuary's rules of cleanness. And the Lord heard Hezekiah and healed the people say, wait, 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 I thought if you broke the rules, God had to smite you. Somebody has to get lit up. Bad priests, wrong priests, wrong month, not set aside, doing everything wrong, but the people's heart says, we do want to seek the Lord. So God heard the prayer of Hezekiah and says, you know what, you are fine. You came to worship me? I will, t- I will receive your worship. Now, we shouldn't get into it because there's not time for it, but maybe this is something that's important for you to understand because many, many believers now, they say, I can't, I can't get this figured out. I don't read my Bible good enough. I don't pray good enough. I, don't, I do this bad. I do this horrible, and you just wonder if there's even any reason to even trying this because how could God put up with somebody like me? I'm sure none of you think that, and here we have God saying, no, I got you. I have heard your prayer. You're seeking me with a sincere heart. I hear you. All right, last story, John chapter 21. I told you two Old Testament, two new, one New Testament. Stay into my word. Jesus had died on the cross. Jesus had rode for him again. Peter, on the other hand, had had a pretty bad go of it too. Before Jesus died, he had betrayed him three times, calling down curses upon himself at one point. Jesus glaring, staring deep into his eyes after the final betrayal. Peter now finds himself fishing out into a fishing boat, doing what most of us do after full-fledged rebellion against Christ, try to distract ourselves with something we're good at. Peter was also failing at that, not catching anything. Jesus shows up on the seashore. Peter, in his rebellion, out fishing, Jesus on the seashore. Jesus says to him, Children, do you have any fish? I think he was smiling. They couldn't see it. They said no, and he said, I'll throw your net on the right side of the boat. So they cast it in, and there were so many fish in it that they weren't even able to pull it into the boat. They knew who it was now. We know who does this kind of stuff. Peter said, It's the Lord, and he jumped out of the boat, ran to the shore. And what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do to Peter? I want you to pay attention to Peter here. He had denied the Lord before he was crucified. That's bad. Now, you have probably denied the Lord many times in your life. You have never denied him on the night of his crucifixion. After having denied him, he ran, and he hid. And now he's out fishing, essentially telling Jesus... I don't want to be your fisher of men. I'm a fisher of fishes. So Peter is in full flight away from Christ, and now he's coming back to the beach. What does Jesus do? Oh, you're going to have to make up for this one, Peter. Boy, you've really, oh, man, you've blown it. You've blown it so bad it's going to be in the Bible. I mean, that's bad. What, he what, is, what does Jesus do for Peter? make some breakfast what is that verse we're reading over in Matthew chapter 7 if a son asked his father for bread would he give him a rock what is Jesus feeding Peter bread cooked right there on the beach man I bet you it smelled really really good if a son asked his father for a fish would he give him a snake what's cooking there fish. Why did Jesus make Peter breakfast on the beach? Two reasons. It's delicious. Have you ever noticed that Jesus didn't show up with a meat pack? Like a fla- You would think flavorless gruel is what Peter should be eating. I know you're tired, but you're going to pass out if you don't eat something. Here is some oatmeal with all the flavor extracted. And I know there's not a lot you have to do. (laughs) Flavor out. Basically leave the brown sugar off. Um, But he doesn't do that. And he doesn't make him eat raw fish. What is it about God's creation that when you apply heat to protein, it makes it amazing? And Jesus did exactly that. He gave him fish because he knew it would fill his belly. He gave him grilled fish. Because it tastes good. And it tastes even better when somebody else cooks it. Well, you just work all day, you walk up on the beach, and Jesus says, would you like some fresh bread and some fresh fish? What does Peter know precisely about his relationship with the Lord? Number one, it's fine. Number two, it doesn't depend on Peter. It doesn't, it depends on a good father. And I'm looking at that beach. That is one beach I would have loved to have been on. And Jesus is telling us here God listens and is moved to action, not by whether or not we deserve it. He is moved to action by his goodness and his care. Our prayers are heard not because of what we are like, our prayers are heard because of what he is like. And we are being called to trust that he is, in fact, as good as the Bible says he is. Look at Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. It's called the Golden Rule. God listens and desires for us to be like him. We're going to spend just a few minutes on this before we close. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. That's what it says. So, whatever you wish others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. God listens and desires for us to be like him. God listens to us. He hears us because he is a good father. And now he says, I want to to listen to you, and my desire is for you to also be like me. And this is the golden rule. Whatever you uh, wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, this was a common teaching during that time period. In fact, this was a popular teaching for many rabbis in the first century. Jesus wasn't original to it, but he changed it. The rabbinical teaching of the time had it in the negative. Do not do to anyone what you would not want them to do to you. And Jesus switched it and took a popular saying and made it positive. He said, no, I'm not saying just refrain from killing people. I'm saying what you would prefer people do to you, go and do to them. As one commentator said... The popular rabbi teaching could be obeyed by doing nothing. I can obey that rule by simply not killing anybody. Jesus' saying is only obeyed when I do something positive for someone else. Whatever I wish for others to do, to me, I want to also do for them. This saying that Jesus' teaching here requires our action, that we understand what God is like and allow his likeness to show up in our lives. There's an Old Testament example of the golden rule. We we just simply don't have time to turn there, but I'm going to reference it. There was a guy named Haman. He was second in command to Xerxes in the book of Esther. Familiar with the book? Seen the cartoon or maybe the Veggie Tales version? Anyway, Haman was elevated by Xerxes to the second in command in all of um, that kingdom. And one night... Uh, Haman is playing on killing Mordecai. Of course, when you say Haman, you just throw everybody, boo. Okay, Haman walks in, and he's going in to ask the king if he can kill Mordecai. Mordecai is the uncle of Esther. And he goes into the king to ask if he can kill Mordecai. Before he gets his word out, uh, the king says to Haman, Hey, Haman, I've got a question for you. What should I do for the person I wish to honor? And Mordecai, Haman he says in his head, boy, obviously he wants to honor me because I am amazing. So he says, what you ought to do is you should take your robe, put it on that guy, put your ring on that guy, put that guy on your horse, and have one of your nobles parade him around the city saying, this guy's awesome. Now that's a translation, but that's essentially what you're doing. Because he assumed he was going. So what he was doing was the golden rule. I want done to me what I think. Anyway, so the king says, yeah, go and do that for Mordecai. So Haman is forced to do unto Mordecai what he wanted done unto himself, parade Mordecai around the city, honored. What Haman had missed is the king had already honored him. He was second in command in all of the kingdom. He was already recognized. What's left for second in command in all of the kingdom? Just to be the king. Because Haman was never going to be happy unless he was in charge of everything. As a result, Mordecai was lifted up and Haman was executed and killed for his betrayal. Haman did what to Mordecai what he wanted and he paid for it with his life. Jesus is saying this to us. Put yourself in Haman's shoes. I have lifted you up and exalted you in the kingdom of God. We are in Christ heirs of the kingdom of God. What more could you want? There's nothing left. There's nothing left to achieve for the son or daughter of the king. We are heirs to the kingdom of God. We look forward to an eternal reign with God himself. There is nothing left for us to get. And Jesus is saying to us, do unto others as I have done unto you. Don't be like Haman, who will only be happy when you're God himself. Instead, Be lifted up by all that God has done for you through the cross and the resurrection, and now look to others around you and say, I know what I would do. I know what would be a blessing to me. I will do it unto them. I recognize how loving the Father has been to me. I want that love of the Father to now boil over into the lives of the people around me. God listens to us, and He hears our prayers, and one of the desires of His heart for us is that our heart would be like His. And that we would lift up those around us to the same degree we have been lifted up in the kingdom of God. God listens to what we say, what we think and we feel. God listens and is moved by his caring. And God listens and desires for us to be like him. Just one application. Are you ready? I don't have a lot for you to do. It's probably kind of normal, but this is even more so. I need you to believe the Bible here. God is really good. What Jesus is telling us in Matthew chapter 7 is we have a father who is, in fact, good. Unqualified in his goodness, meaning everything he does for us is the best thing that could be done for us. Everything he does for us is absolutely good and right and true. In order to experience this vibrant relationship of God in prayer and to wrestle with God in prayer, we have to be convinced by his word that he is as good as he says he is. He is God who says, if you break my promise, I'll pay the price. He is God who says, in your brokenness and your imperfection and your your stubbornness, I will hear and listen to you. He is the one who has given us the kingdom of God in his son. So let me ask this question, then we're going to close. There's an area in your life, would be my guess, where you are convinced God has let you down. And you know, you don't need to write it down, but you're convinced. You know, God has really blown it here. He's got 90% of my life nailed it. This particular area, I don't even know what he was thinking. So, what the Word of God has to do is inform our hearts and minds. Do I believe what I see with my eyes and my experience, or am I going to believe what the Bible says about God? That in that moment, in that situation, that stuff, God knows precisely what he is doing. Because what the enemy is trying to do is take the normal stuff of God's work in your life and convince you either you don't measure up or God is a meaning. That is his full-time job. To take the experience of our life and convince us, well, obviously I don't measure up or God would have done this different, or God is not very nice. And the Bible tells us neither one of those things are untrue. In Christ, we measure up, we are righteous. In Christ, God has given us the kingdom of God. We need to allow the Word of God to challenge the perceptions we have of reality and say, God is as good as the Bible says He is. And I can rest. In the goodness of God. Let me close by reading Psalm 36, 5 through 10. If I can find it. Psalm 36. This is what the Bible tells us. Your steadfast love, O Lord, extends to the heavens. Your faithfulness to the clouds. Your righteousness is like the mountains of God. Your judgments are like the great deep. Man and beast you save, O Lord. How precious is your steadfast love, O God! The children of mankind take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They feast on the abundance of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your delights. For with you is the fountain of life, and in your light do we see light. O continue your steadfast love to those who know you, and your righteousness to the upright of heart.